Hello, welcome to the First Things Editor's Desk podcast. I'm Rusty Reno, editor of First Things Magazine. And this week I'm joined by Bill McClay, who delivered the 2021 Erasmus Lecture at the Union League Club here in New York at the end of October. And we published his lecture, The Claims of Memory, in our January issue of First Things Magazine. No, was it the January issue, Bill? Yes, yes it was. Yeah, January. January. And so I'm just so delighted to have Bill McClay here with me to talk about memory, history, and identity. Welcome, Bill. Rusty, I'm delighted to be here. It's always great to do anything with First Things. All right. Well, very kind of you. So memory, memory. It's a, it was a meditation. Your piece is a meditation on, I think, as you describe it, memory as the glue. Yes, that's the metaphor you use. Uh, the glue that holds things together in our personal lives, but also in our social lives. Yeah, no, that's right. So in your piece, you use Alzheimer's as a, an image of the consequences of loss of memory. And, and I mean, I think all of our listeners can understand the way in which Alzheimer's is such a threat to identity of feared disease because it seems to cut us off from our very selves. Yes. And uh, it, it, one of the things that I, I tried to get at in the essay is that um, in some ways that this is true, even when memories are not always 100% accurate, um, you can have a vivid but somewhat erratic memory you know, this is why I quote Touchstone, you know, it's just an ill-favored thing, but mine own. Uh, as long as it's your own memory, uh, it is still serving that purpose of the glue that holds things together. And to, uh, you know, I think often of people who tell me they get into arguments with their 78-year-old mother about this or that uh, political issue uh, you know, same-sex marriage or whatever. And and I always think, why on earth are you trying to alter the architecture of someone's mind at that age? For It has to be for something fundamental, like belief in the divinity of Jesus Christ. That I can go with. <laughs> but but, but uh, over, over changing your views about the origins of the Cold War or something like that, at a certain point, it, you know, the, the the construction of reality that someone has organized their life around is a delicate thing. You don't want to fool with it unnecessarily. Um, so uh, I think correcting memories, uh, often I think when you get with older parents, um, you know, that's not really that's not really very important. Um, There's a peril here because you draw the analogy to society that um, you have this marvelous quote from Santayana, any tradition is better than any reconstruction. So I guess what a flawed memory or a, a kind of rich memory, even if it's riddled with self uh, delusion, is preferable to 
having to reconstruct everything sort of late in life. <laughs> well, this, this, yeah, this is, this is, uh, this, this is in some way, um, the, the, the claim I'm making, although it, I'm, you know, I'm a historian. I had the historiographical training that everybody else who goes through graduate education in a reputable university, uh, is, is they supposed to get, um, and, uh, uh, and I do have respect for the way in which certain illusions about the past that take hold need to be debunked. I, I we, you, you and I could could talk about a whole lot of delusions about the past that that hold us back. Do you have a favorite? Uh, do you have a favorite? I mean, we we've quarreled in the past over. I think nation of immigrants is a uh, is an illusion in the sense that. Actually, the vast majority of Americans are native-born. They're not immigrants. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, that that's that's a biggie. That's a mythic. Uh, state. A, there's a kind of way, though, that the myth is, of course, a true myth. It's a place. America is a place people have come to, so to speak. Yes. Rather than emerged out of. And and there is a sense that among many of us that in some ways it it, it is a place that offers to us. Uh, a um an ability to to sort of um, make our own way to choose the path that we're going to follow to not be bound by the conditions into which we were born more than any other society uh you know past or present um and and that's part of our glory and that's part of our dilemma at the moment that because people have in a way the ability to choose things that they really shouldn't choose without the sort of moral guardrails that prevailed uh, in, during times in the past. Um, so you, so your sense is that whether it's whether it's uh, the revolutionary generation to make a a, a new order, you know, uh, for the ages, um, or it's the immigrant who picks up and leaves. You know Poland and or Ireland or Germany in the nineteenth century that they both participate in the same kind of forging of a new future. I never thought of it that way, but I, I think that's a very persuasive connection. It, um, you know, I I wrote this book um, called Land of Hope, which is an attempt to sort of counter the the the, the sort of relentless disparaging of America that you see in textbooks and. Uh, and that was part of what I was trying to convey is that that for those of us who are already here and for those of us who are drawn here for various reasons, it does have that sense that part of the na national identity is its open-endedness, its openness to um, uh, enterprise, to transformation, to change, to trying something new. Um and not just be the the stonemason that your father was, or the whatever, um, and that can involve immigration. Um, and I think immigration, properly understood, is something that has always um, tended to renew our sense of ourselves um, in a way that uh, that that you know the the, the, the sort of Brahmin. Uh, population of Boston in the late 19th century, for example, uh, didn't didn't fully uh, adequately grasp. Um, 
I, I wouldn't read them out of the picture by any means, uh, but but they they don't have the whole story. There is something uh, in uh, you know Henry Adams has this wonderful description of snowball fights that would occur in the Boston Common, and, and on one side would be you know the the the, the well born native types like himself, and then on the other side there were these guys who were obviously Irish. Uh, it, 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 although he doesn't exactly say that, but it's very clear that that's and the Irish guys, of course, they put rocks inside the snowballs. They they play tough. They they don't play by the rules. The, the, but um, that that sort of uh, sense of uh, that clash that that's that's part of both sides of that are part of our culture. It's not just the 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 uh, the Irish the energy of the Irish immigrants. It's also the you know, everything that Henry Adams and his clan brought to the table. Um, but, you know, and, and all of this, I think, does need to be in some way appropriated as part of our national memory. Um, uh, and, and I think there's a real danger uh, of thinking that we're going to uh, gather these things by osmosis, that somehow it's just going to come to us. I mean, the the unbelievable ignorance of young people about fundamental features of our, our history. I think just unfathomable to those who don't come into contact with it as I do. Oh, I have to tell you, uh, since I've come to Hillsdale College, I, uh, I'm, I'm getting spoiled uh, by uh, the fact that they do know the years that the Civil War took place. They do know uh, uh, things, something about who was who we oppose in the Second World War, uh, but a lot of a lot of young people simply don't know, and they don't care to know. Nobody's ever asked them to know. So I it, it, this I think is part of the the memory that we have to cultivate, uh, not the memory that just comes to us in the course of living, uh, in, in individual subjective experience of memory. It's something that if we're going to remain um, a nation um, uh, that a country, if you like, if you prefer, um, that has a sense of itself um, as being bound together in some way by a past that we share, by a present that we, we share, and a future that hopefully, hopefully we share. Um, and the consequences of not sharing those things will be dire uh, for all of us. Um, we need to have a better sense of of of, of memory, of, of our identity as it's embodied in this remembered past. And here, I think the historians don't help a lot because um, we've done a great job of disaggregating the past into sort of problems and debunkings that uh, that allow us to write great books and seminar papers and make make all sorts of progress in our academic careers but but we don't sit back and think about what is this doing to our nation's our national sense of ourselves what is left after all has been debunked all has been deconstructed and you know you one of the other things i get into in the lecture is uh, that there are those who uh, are interested in the deconstruction of memory as, of collective memory as an academic field. And those people 
um, they don't make any bones about the fact they're trying to uh, their ultimate goal, their end game is the construction of new narratives, new memories, uh, new ways to to uh, sort of configure the soul of the country so that it will uh, work better. There will be diversity, equity, and inclusion at every level uh, and in every way. Um, and uh, uh, I, th I think that's in addition to being a rather totalitarian uh, way of doing things, uh, one that's not likely to succeed either. Um, the, well, I mean, as I guess the way I thought about it, the gravamon of your lecture is that we're imperiled by a collective Alzheimer's or the threat of a collective, a kind of self-imposed um, wiping away of memory. Yes, um, I agree with that. Kind of American... There's an American, as you say, it's the immigrant. There's a part of our native um, uh, personality of kind of starting anew. But I mean, I, I, you, you, you point that Lincoln, the young Abraham Lincoln, uh, was anxious about what would happen to the country after the revolution was no longer in a living memory. Yes. The, the founding generation passes to their reward who will carry forward the project, which, of course, you have to actually know what the project is to carry it. Yes. <laughs> yes. So it is a kind of perennial uh, American anxiety, and then we, we sift the past and renew it. Um, and there have been different, there have been different permutations on the American story, wouldn't you say? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it's 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 it. it I wouldn't say it's exactly cyclical in character, but there's a cyclical quality built into it. Uh, you know, one of my favorite sayings in this regard, is, you know, Marcus Lee Hansen, who is a name you probably never heard, your listeners probably never heard. He was one of the at one time, the dean of American historians of immigration. And he has a saying um, what. The father wishes to forget, the son wishes to remember. And this is really talking about the, the, the three generations, you know, the immigrant generation, and then the generation of the father, the second generation, and the generation of the son, the third generation. And it's a pattern you see again and again in, in immigration that the third generation wants to know what the grandfather knew. And wants to sort of leap over the father's experience of, of working like mad to assimilate, to get ahead, to get established, to take advantage of all the opportunities the country has to offer. And then it's, it's his, his son who wants to recover the very things the father wished to forget. So um, I think th this, this is part of what you're talking about, the part of the way that that, that, that in this almost cyclical form. Um, we're, we're a very modern nation and there's a kind of Cartesian impulse to wipe the slate clean. You know, I think at the beginning of the meditations, Descartes urges us to knock down the inherited uh, house of knowledge and build a new uh, very yes. good impulse. Uh, but we oscillate between that and, and whether it's the 4th of July or 
or other celebrations where we cherish the past far from knocking it down. We kind of build it up in our collective, um, our collective memories. Uh, we're, we're a romantic we're, nation, too. We're yeah. a Cartesian nation and a romantic nation. Yeah. But is that fair with the, because you quote, um, as you say, you mentioned it with John Gillis, this notion of constructing new memories and the di- disaggregation that we've been through, we're in the midst of, gosh, not even been through, we're in the thick of a period, it seems, of tremendous iconoclasm and tearing down and self-willed forgetfulness. Uh, but your point about the cycle of the generations, maybe that's a, new, a word of encouragement. <laughs> I, I think it is. I think it is. I think it, it's... And, and you know, here's something interesting. You, you, I'm a little older than you, but we're, we're, you may have the similar memory to me that when I was in school, you know, in in elementary, middle school, uh, and we said the Pledge of Allegiance always. And of course, the smart kids, you know, the the ones who read the New Republic and thing, and I actually had friends who did um, when it was worth reading, and. Uh, 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 and you know it was it was the the smart opinion was this is a waste of time because when you try to indoctrinate uh, young people they're just going to rebel and reject it um, so that that the the, the the attempt to inculcate by rote is a is a is a mistaken uh, proposition I imagine uh, catechesis in, in churches suffered. From this this kind of perception too that we can't just, you know it won't work if we shove it down their throats. Let's uh, bring you know guitars into the room and bongo drums and then then that way it'll, it'll work. Um, well, now we have the boomers who have grown up and taken charge, uh, and and they've they've turned to these these little Maoists who think that by uh, changing uh, the 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 furniture. The architecture around them, um, eliminating all references to things in the past that that might be discreditable or problematic in that favorite word uh, of the day. You could do a whole disquisition on the use of the word problematic. Even um, worse, problematize. And problematize. Yeah. Well, that's that actually is a way a more defensible usage that you know now when a, when someone tells you for some reason it's always a woman that your opinions on this subject are problematic that's <laughs> her way of saying they're morally unacceptable <laughs> uh, but, but but you don't want to use that language of moral anything um so you call it problematic Anyway, I've I've uh, I've lost my train of thought. Just getting off on the problematic. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, I mean, it, it's this sense that we can we can program uh, people's minds to be to be virtuous, to uh, and, and appropriately guilty where guilt is required, um, uh, and uh, or and and not exposed. To the negative influences that produce racism, or justify racism, or justify sexism, or justify, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you can program the public environment in such a way that the complexity of memory is is completely eliminated. I I have an example. I I, I may have mentioned this 
at the lecture. I can't remember whether I did or not. My memory fails me. But uh, <laughs> I remember going with my wife to the opera in Rome, and the the uh, it, and and there, it's it's this very nice uh, theater uh, uh, was constructed, I believe, in the 30s, 1930s, and way above the the stage, there's a very small but legible medallion that has the name of Mussolini on it. Um, and I was just astonished to see it uh, because Mussolini, there may there are parts of Italy where Mussolini is venerated, but not Rome. Uh, and I, it, it, it struck me as a, a blow for civilization that it had never occurred to people to take it down. Um, they were, they were going to leave that. And I, now I don't know whether the current Wokarati um uh have have changed their minds about that but i i was very happy <laughs> strangely happy to see mussolini's name preserved um and there were other there's some architectural sections of rome that are um openly uh, you know acknowledge mussolini's provenance uh um now i don't want to make too big a deal of that except to say that that um this is my reaction at the tearing down of monuments to Confederate generals, which is I have no particular stake in that, um, uh, in in keeping them, but it did seem to me a rather wanton and mindless act that that might well have been more damaging to the very cause that sought to advance than. Um, they might seem at first glance that you know it, it's. I think it's good to have reminders of uh, our fallibility, of our, of our, and our complexity. The complexity of our history. The complexity of the fact that good people. Uh, I'm afraid I'm going to sound like Trump here, but that good people can be attracted to bad causes, um, and uh, uh, we are we are all sinners. Some of us more so than others, but. Um, it, we all have propensity to get caught up in the wrong kinds of things for various reasons. And I don't think that's a reason to go around um, uh, desecrating every monument uh, in the site, especially rather beautiful ones, and, and leaving nothing of comparable value in their place. Well, I wouldn't say just not nothing of comparable value, but nothing at all. Yeah, nothing at all. I think that, you know... There's no question that the Lee statue in Richmond was erected to cast the aura of nobility over the segregationist policies of that city in the late 19th century. And But taking it down, I, there'll never be anything in its place. Uh, instead of Starbucks. So we have our public sphere is, is denuded and in its place uh, we get commerce and entertainment. Um, it's, a, it's interesting that people who who are uh, opposed to originalism when it comes to uh, constitutional interpretation are absolutely wedded to originalism when it comes to the construction of monuments. That that um, that the, the, and I'm the other way around. I think the meaning of a monument is is partly the way it's received in the years after it's erected. Well, that's you know, a very good point uh, in Baltimore. They removed a Roger Tawney statue 
uh, in Mount Vernon Square, Mount, um, where, and you know, I doubt that one percent of the residents of Baltimore even know who Roger Tony was. Um, you know, and it was put there by a, a wealthy uh, businessman who was it was an act of patronage to the sculptor, who had produced a, a, a an earlier version of it that's in front of the Maryland State House. So yeah. History is a kind of funny business. It's very complicated. <laughs> and it, well, and, and let me just add, Tawny um, was, uh, it, it, except for, for Dred Scott, which was a um, terrible misjudgment um, and an effort on his part to have the courts settle something that they could not settle and sell it the wrong way. Um, uh, but he was otherwise... Uh, I, I think you, most fair-minded uh, people who've studied him say he was a rather admirable jurist in other respects. And he did not uh, desert the Union. He did not join the Confederate cause. He he continued on at the Supreme Court. I mean, people don't seem to uh, give give him any credit for that. Um, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I think there should always be a um, can I say a, a, a dark mark <laughs> against his name, but um, uh, uh, that doesn't mean he should be erased. I think they've done the same thing, by the way, at the Maryland State Capitol in Annapolis. There's a beautiful statue of him right by the uh, right by Maryland Avenue at the Maryland State Capitol. I think that's gone now. It's the same statue. Yeah, it was a replica that was put in. Baltimore. Yeah, I believe it is the same statue. Yeah, William Walters was a patron of the sculptor, and I think he wanted to throw him a a, a, a fat commission, <laughs> help him pay his debts or something like yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> um, the Walters of the Walters Art Gallery. Yes, yeah, yes. He, you know, a banker and uh, yes. Yeah. I want to end here with this. You really have this wonderful quote from George Steiner um, about, it's a funny way in which the, as you say, the KGB and the serious writer, this is Steiner, they agree that, that the, these moments of novels and so on, you could say historical memory is the powerhouse of human affairs. Nothing more charged with the detonators of dreams and action than the word, particularly the word known by heart. And I mean, I, that's kind of a coda, it seems to me, for your meditation, that um, what we hold in our hearts as a memory of who we are as a people is that it's really an extraordinarily powerful thing. Yes, yes, and 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 I think by um, um, you know to, to bring it to a more banal level, but I think related, it, you know, the the and it's something Steiner emphasizes by eliminating memorization, uh, you know, what we disparage as rote learning uh, from our education. We've we've uh, impoverished our memories. Yeah, we've 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 left um, the, the the our our safety deposit box is empty um, of the things that we could draw on uh, in in difficult 
times, the things that could can remind us of of who we are. Uh, they, they, now, I think for for those of us who you, you know who are church going people, um, there are hymns, there are liturgical um, forms that 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 can serve that sort of steadying function, and we we do memorize them. We 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 take them in into our minds, into our hearts in that way. If only through just repetition day after day after day, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we we they become a part of us. But they um and that's something nobody can take away. That that's one of the things I liked about Steiner's uh emphasis is when you memorize something, as imperfect as memory is, um you know, I I I stumble around with the Nicene Creed because I've gone to different churches, different denominations in my life that that render it a little bit differently, and uh, uh, so I, I I a lot of times I'll I'll, I'll say the wrong thing, but uh, I'm so glad I have it in my memory, even if imperfectly. So uh, I think part of the tenacity of tradition is in memory. I mean, the one part of the liturgy that refuses to be updated is the Lord's Prayer. Yes. Isn't uh, that great? I love you, that. It's, you, get, you know, you get the thee and the thou, uh, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, because it's the one part of the liturgy that is the most deeply encoded into the hearts of believers through constant repetition. And... So what it, you know, when I was in elementary school, we were at, forced to memorize the Gettysburg Address, four score and seven years ago. Our forefathers brought upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated the proposition that all men are equal. Um, what well, did I mean? That was uh, that was. I guess you could say that was part of our of our civic liturgy. That kind civic of catechesis. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Was there what did, was there anything else that you were that's the only thing I can remember from my. Well, I mean, yeah, in the Pledge of Allegiance, of course, and uh, Pledge of Allegiance, yes. Um, I I think, um, you know, I'm I'm old enough. I was in school when <laughs> when Kennedy uh, Kennedy gave his inaugural address, and that was a, a very striking. I I think we were asked to memorize uh, parts of that. And then, of course, the King Dream speech. Yes, yes, yes. That's another, if you will, touchstone, I think, of our... It could be. You know, it would be so much better if people did memorize it instead of having this sort of vague sense and always thinking, instead of calling it up out of their memory, they can go to read it, see a YouTube video of it, so they don't have to remember. From the mountains of of New Hampshire to the Mole Hill. The Freedom Ring. (laughs) Yeah, I I I also wanted to say something, and I I I if I don't know whether he'd be listening, but I owe uh, Stu Halpern, who you know, uh, who's a dean at Yeshiva, uh, Yeshiva University. He um, strongly recommended that I um, that I read the, the the book, which I had actually read before, Zakhor, um, which is a study, uh, it's a classic study by a guy named Yerushalmi of um, Jewish memory and historiography and the tension between the two. And I did, I inserted a couple of paragraphs about that because it said so well 
something that I very much wanted to say in this this essay, uh, in this lecture. Was well, yeah, because it's your point about how the academic historian is, uh, I mean, the academic historian sort of takes things apart in order to see them in their, to see them, if you will, clearly in their particularity. But historical memory of a people is synthetic. It's a putting together of things, not of taking them apart. And they were, they're kind of a, they, they do go at odds with each other, although I'm with you. I think that there's a value in the modern historiographical method. Yes, as long as we recognize it for what it is, in the same way that modern science um, it, uh, has to prescind methodologically uh, from things that scientists, there are still some who do, uh, affirm ontologically, metaphysically. Um, it, 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 Yerushalmi's point is that um, Jewish historiography uh, requires that uh, its its practitioners um, set aside the one thing that is absolutely central to Jewish identity. That is uh, they, the the story of God's cho- choosing of the Jews, um, the the chosen status of the Jews, a divine mission. Uh, and what have you got when you <laughs> when you absolutely bracket that um, as something? Well, we're not going to talk about that. Um, it it it's something I think every you know every person who studies the the sort of philosophy, sociology, whatever religion confronts. But um, I think they rarely get <laughs> a a an affirmation of memory of the memory side of it that. Uh, and and I, I quote uh, quote him. Let me see if I can find the quote quickly of uh, what I what. Uh, yes, he says. Historiography. This is Yerushalmi, is but one expression of the awareness that history is meaningful and of the need to remember. And neither meaning nor memory ultimately depend upon it. Um, in other words, you know, they. Uh, all the generations after Abraham up to the 19th century, uh, there was no need for anything beyond the authority of tradition uh, of the passing on uh, of, uh, of texts and of, of oral learning and oral, oral wisdom uh, uh, that, that the, the, with the advent of modern historiography, he says, the coherence of the Jewish tradition has been broken down. Um, a tradition that, of meaning and memory that was erected upon the belief that divine providence is not only an ultimate, but an active causal factor in Jewish history, that this must be denied. So I, I think that this is a, a, a one case for all of us, uh, uh, even those of us who don't have the quite the, the, the splendid intensity of the Jewish um, consciousness and experience. Well, I think, you know, your, your book, Land of Hope, uh, you know, the one volume for listeners, one volume, History of America, it seems to me that you do a wonderful job of stitching together what, what um, this historiographical, if you will, objectivity with a kind of warm 
conviction that our country really does hold out a promise of freedom and opportunity. Uh, yes. And that, well, thank you. I, that's that, that was my objective, and you couldn't have said anything nicer. Uh, it 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 is. I the, the, what I always say in this regard too is that to leave out, you know, people say, "What do you think about American exceptionalism?" And you know, it's always said with this sort of, "Now I've got you," <laughs> because you you know you're going to have to say you don't completely buy it, and I don't, you know, I don't completely buy it in some respects. But uh, I actually don't like the term exceptional. I, yeah, I, but, I don't like it either. Yeah. But, well, but, I, I would say it's a very odd, would have to be, you'd have to be very ideologically blinkered not to recognize that the United States of America is quite an extraordinary place. Yes. I mean, yes. The rest yes. of you travel around the world. And I mean, whether. No, and then this is an obsession. Yes, or hate us. They do recognize that we're we're quite the phenomenon. In well, and this is an obsession of the profession of my colleagues is to stamp out American exceptionalism as if it was this noxious weed, you know, that that uh, (laughs) uh, or virus. (laughs) But uh, my contention is that you cannot give an accurate um, portrait of what this country is without um, recognizing the fact that this is part of our spirit. And spirit um, is as much what a nation is, maybe more than what a, what a nation is in its material aspects. Um, and I, I, I say that not specifically as a Christian, but uh, being a Christian doesn't hurt. <laughs> um, but there is, a, there, is a, there is a spirit, there is an ethos and it's it's not. This is my source of my hope at this ra- rather depressing time. Um, depressing, not only uh, in obvious ways, but the, the, in the American people's somewhat supine reaction to what's being inflicted on them. Uh, but I don't want to get off our topic. I, uh, but it's the reason I'm hopeful. So I do think there are these. Um, elements in our memory, in our makeup that we will draw upon. Just as you can you can push a man um only so far, be the nicest, sweetest, gentlest, most soy boy kind of individual, but you push him hard enough and you'll get to the man <laughs> to the aggressive male reaction. It's there. It it is there to be drawn upon in his in his spirit, probably in his hormones too. <laughs> well, on that hopeful note, and I do share with you that conviction that uh, for all the efforts of erasure, uh, the American memory is is really quite strong, and we uh, we will return to our um, our our identity as a people and come out of kind of crazy time that we're in now. Well, thanks, Bill, for joining me. And uh, let me just tell our listeners that Land of Hope is actually a better way (laughs) than the 1519 Project. So thanks for that wonderful Erasmus lecture. And um, and thanks for your work as an historian. Well, thank you for the honor. And and I I must say to your listeners that there are, I look at the list of Erasmus lecturers in the past and 
I thought of myself doing what I said, you know, you've got no business in with this group. You know, I mean, Ratzinger and, uh, you know, uh, Robert Wilkin and so on, you know, but um, now I'm there. You know, they'll have to live with me. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.